Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. Thanks for coming back, even though you knew I'd be here. <laughs> it's good to have the bright sunshine. It's, uh, it's good to celebrate what God uh, was doing through that food drive that you were, the food bank you were offering. That's a wonderful thing. It's, it's so good to see churches investing in their neighborhoods, in their communities. And I'm sure it delights God to see you doing that here. And Sharon, your song, my goodness, that's a sermon right there. Uh, I'm surprised a few of us didn't throw tomatoes rather than uh, clap, you know. It's pretty pointed. But you know what? God answered your prayer because that ties in with what I'm going to be saying today. It's amazing how God does that. So I'm looking forward to delivering God's word to you. At the same time, I'm also a little um, apprehensive because not everything will be easy to hear, yet it's important to hear. And that's the role that uh, one has when you teach the word of God. So I want to be frank with you right off the start, even though there's a good sense of family here and and respect and enjoyment in one another across a wide age demographic. This seems like a very family-friendly church. Um, And though there's good things happening in ministries like the the food ministry, uh, I also sense weariness, Uh, especially last week when I was here, uh, less so today. I sense a weariness among you. And I suppose that's normal when you're in between pastors, uh, when uh, things have not always gone according to plan in the life of the church. Uh, And I want to address that weariness today. In our text this morning, Matthew chapter 11, we meet John the Baptist, who also is weary and discouraged. So I'll give you a time to turn to Matthew chapter 11, first book in the New Testament. And in the opening verses, we meet John the Baptist, who's in prison, about to lose his head, literally, because he had criticized King Herod for divorcing his wife so he could marry his sister-in-law, Herodias, who then divorced his brother to help this new marriage begin. John's in trouble for speaking out against this kind of stuff going on in the royal household. So John is also discouraged and weary because his cousin, Jesus Christ, isn't doing all the things that the rescuer of Israel, the judge of the Gentiles, the promised Messiah was supposed to be doing. Things were not going according to plan. And as I have already said, I sense that here too, as in many churches, no church escapes this, things don't always go according to plan. I'm aware that over the years here at Kingwood Bible, there's been periods of slow growth. There have been some awkward pastoral transitions, families who have left, numbers that have dwindled, and spiritual vitality that has drained, right? Or am I making that up? No. It's been there. And no doubt, this has raised some fears and doubts, certainly some questions among you. 
And in addition, our nation is divided, our world is troubled, our families are stressed, and we as individuals are not everything we would like to be. We have reason to be weary and discouraged. And yet, in the messiness of all these realities, Jesus is offering us rest. Skip down to near the end of Matthew chapter 11. Actually, it is the end. Verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you read it together with me, out loud? It's on the screen. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So how do we find this rest in the circumstances we find ourselves in personally, as families, as a church, as a nation? How do we find this rest? How do we actually experience this rest that Jesus is promising us? Well, first of all, we find this rest when we remember that Christ is truly with us. Christ is truly with us. Let's go back to verse 2 in this chapter. And here we read, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? John wants to know if Jesus truly is the Messiah. He wants assurance that the Savior of the world has actually arrived. And Jesus responds to the disciples' questions in verses 4 and 5 by saying, Go back to John and report what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is reminding both John and us today that his miraculous life and ministry indicate that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, our Savior, is indeed among us. Could we advance to the next slide as it reminds us that it's important to remember that Christ is truly with us today, here at Kingwood Bible Church this morning? Do you have a sense of his near presence when you come together to worship? Or do you think that he's out there somewhere? Do you sense his closeness in your daily life? After all, in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. He also, at the end of the book of Matthew, said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. The Messiah was not only with John the Baptist, he's here with you and I today. He really is. 
Since his ascension, Christ is not present in the same way we would see a physical person sitting next to us. But he is seen in our Christ-like character development. He's seen in the gracious relationships we have with one another. And he is seen in what his spirit leads us to accomplish together in his name. Especially when we care for the poor and the marginalized. That all makes Jesus seen. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, the opening of the Lord's prayer begins with these words, our Father who is in heaven. Now that phrase became revolutionary for me when I realized, someone pointed this out, that that phrase in heaven could just as well be translated as close as the air around me. So where do you think Jesus is when you pray to him? Where do you think God is when you pray to him? Out there somewhere? Or is he as close as the air you breathe? When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he was saying, remember your father, your daddy, is as close as the air you breathe. Would you try something with me? Just lick your lips for a moment. Now breathe in and out through those moist lips. Do you feel the air coming across? That's as close as Jesus is to you by his spirit. That is as close as God, your creator, is to you and I. He's as close as the air we breathe. Now, since losing my wife, Lorelei, to cancer about six and a half years ago, I have felt such deep loneliness all too often. I really miss her. She was a wonderful lady, and if any of you got to know her, you would agree. She was creative, she was beautiful, she was honest. She was just a wonderful partner. I miss her sorely. And in those times of acute loneliness, uh, I've really had to work at remembering that though she's gone, God is with me, and he will be enough. And so often I'll just, just pray that opening line, my father, as close as the air I breathe. Help me to just settle into your presence, your loving presence. I offer that to you when you're feeling weary about your life individually, about your family life, about the state of our nation, about what's happening or not happening here at Kingwood Bible Church. Remember that Christ is truly with you. We also begin to find rest when we give up trying to be in control. That's the second thing that's important for us to remember today. We find rest when we give up trying to be in control. Can we move to the next slide? Thank you. In verses 16 through 19 of our chapter, Jesus critiques the religious people around him. They're actually people like you and I. Too often we think of the Pharisees as people who are just like so bad, so hypocritical, so whatever. But the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were devoted church people like you and I. They really were. So when we 
think of his warnings to the Pharisees when we read Jesus' words to the Pharisees. It's important that we're willing to apply those words to ourselves because we are faithful church people like they were. So in verse 16, Jesus begins to critique the religious people around him. And he says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is reminding these listeners, and you and I today, that they're controllers, they're complainers. They complained that John the Baptist was too solemn in his ministry and Jesus was not solemn enough. They criticized Jesus for spending time eating and drinking with godless people downtown and most likely criticized John for spending too much time alone in the desert. Now, like them, we too want to be in control of everything around us, don't we? And at the same time, we fail to control what's within us. Let me say that one more time. We want to be in control of everything around us, while at the same time, we fail to control what's within us. It seems easier to look down on the weaknesses of others than to admit our own limitations. It seems easier to try to control our spouses, our children, the people around us at work, at school, and here at church, than it is to humbly admit that we ourselves need big doses of spirit-infused self-control. That can only come about by the work of Christ within us through his spirit. Let's look at this graphic of a yoke. Here we see a couple of oxen linked together by this wooden device called a yoke. The yoke was an early piece of farming technology. It had a profound effect on agriculture. Just like the tractor, many years after, has affected agriculture today. So when Jesus referred to the yoke and asking people to take the yoke upon themselves, uh, in that agrarian society, people quickly got the message. They could see that Jesus was reminding them like, that they are like one of the oxen. Now, usually a farmer would try to match the size and strength of oxen. That would be ideal. But more often than not, one oxen was probably a little smaller because it was a little younger. It was less experienced. And Jesus is reminding us, just by the use of this parable or this illustration, that uh, he's the experienced one. He's the stronger one. And he's asking us to be willing to take his yoke upon us, because we're less experienced, we're less strong, and we need him beside us. The yoke was a good and necessary tool, a way of gaining strength for the younger, inexperienced ox. It was a training device, because the, the younger oxen wouldn't know the routine, wouldn't know the fields as well, wouldn't know the farmer's commands quite as well as the older, experienced, stronger ox. So immediately, these people, when they heard this particular illustration, knew what Jesus was driving at. 
they needed to be willing to relinquish control to let him guide and strengthen. And that word is so important for us even today. Instead of letting Jesus take the lead, we often try to maintain control and we manipulate, we gossip, we complain, we criticize. It's a strong temptation for us all, but it's particularly strong for those of us who are older in age. I can say that. I'm now 62. Uh, I'm becoming part of the AARP generation. (laughs) Sort of fun to get some of those discounts now. But if you're part of this older generation, (laughs) like I am becoming... Here's a very, very important question. Are you, as an older person in this church, willing to give away this church to a younger generation? Are you willing, as an older person in this church, to give away this church to a younger generation? Without bitterness, without gossip, without complaint, without thinking that in the giving away of this church to a younger generation, there's no room for you or you have nothing to offer. That's not true. But the future health of Kingwood Bible Church, its very existence depends on your answer to this question. If you're an older person in this church, a person with long-standing history here, are you prepared to give away this church to a younger generation? And in the giving away of it, accepting the fact that it will be different in the days ahead than what it was 10 years ago. That is so important to come to grips with. In, uh, in my speaking at different churches over the years, I've encountered way too many churches that had a glorious day, but then have shriveled and dwindled, and they have become weak and ineffective because people had not figured out how to give away the church to another group of leaders. And when you bring in a new pastor, will you be bringing him in to do more of what you've been doing? Or are you going to be willing to bring in a new pastor who, together with you, can determine the new ways, the new things that God wants to do in? First of all, in. And then through you. Excuse me. Yeah. But if this church has been teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to God, um, I don't see that you want to change that, would you? I mean, you don't want to change the direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't want to, you don't want to change anything that is biblical and Christ-centered, infused by the Holy Spirit, and honoring of God the Father. I appreciate your concern. I really do. And thanks for your courage in raising the question. I actually have been in some churches where that is a common interaction, where the pastor will give his sermon, and then there will be a time of question and answer and comments, because people in the congregation have their contributions to make as well. So thank you. Have I answered your concern to some degree? Okay, we'll continue and we'll see where this goes, huh? 
Uh, I think what happens so many times is that we begin to think that our way of doing things, our way of organizing ourselves, which has worked for a while, might not be effective in this current season or in the season to come. And so we always have to be willing to to separate the message, the heart of the gospel, the true character of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from the ways and means that we organize ourselves and carry out the mission that he has called us to as his people. So we have to be willing to give up control. And finally, we enter God's rest when we open up more to who Christ really is. And Sharon's song was asking that question of us themselves, or that question this morning as well. Would we recognize Jesus were he among us? Or would he really be too different from our uh, misperceptions and our preconceived ideas as to what he should be? Look at verses 20 through 24 in Matthew 11. Jesus denounces the religious people of his day because they would not accept Jesus for who he really was. He did many miracles among them, but they did not respond in faith. They had their very rigid ideas of what a Messiah should be like and what he should be doing. They certainly weren't interested in his call to repent. And repent means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. Something that first goes on in the interior of our being. Jesus goes as far to say that the pagan Gentile cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have been profoundly changed by his miracle-working presence had he visited them. In contrast to the stubborn unbelief of the more religious Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, which he had visited. These people were so intent on defining who God is. They were so intent of hanging on to their preconceived ideas as to what the Messiah should be like. And we, if we're not careful, will tend to do the same. Let's, Je- let's let Jesus define what true religion is. Let's let Jesus define who God really is. Not you. Or I. Look at verses 25 through 27. I'll read at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I will read that last phrase again. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. If Jesus actually is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, as we hear in Hebrews chapter 1, then let's let him continue to reveal the true character of God to us. Let him correct and expand our view of God. For left to ourselves, 
it will become too small, too narrow, too much in favor of us and people like us. Because God is mysterious and infinitely great, our view of him, our experience of him, can always use deepening and refining. We never get God down. We never can put him in a box. There's always more to him that he's wanting to show of himself to us. Now, because of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, and because of his work in human history, and because of his spirit's work through his church in various parts of the world that I've had the chance to visit, I can say the following things confidently. Jesus is not Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox. He's above and beyond all that. Jesus is not Mennonite, Baptist, Episcopalian, Christian and Missionary Alliance, or any of the over 45,000 denominations you can find in our world today. Jesus is not American, nor does he have a greater love for Americans than any other nationality. Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's above and beyond all that. Jesus does not love pianos and organs more than he loves guitars or drums. You might, but don't lay that on Jesus. Jesus doesn't prefer old hymns and classical music over new songs done in any of the current musical styles. The fact is neither of those things existed when he was walking the earth. Jesus is not white. In fact, if Jesus was trying to get anywhere on an airliner today, he would constantly be getting pulled aside because of his features and his uh, hair color, his skin color. He'd be getting pulled aside regularly for extra interrogation. Jesus does not love law keepers more than law breakers. He does not love adults more than children, men more than women. He does not love straight people more than gay people. And he does not love non-drinkers more than drinkers. On and on, on and on this list could go. If we define Jesus by any one of these things, we are selling him short. We're misrepresenting him. We're doing harm to his church. We're doing harm to his ability to reach into this society around us and meet people, profoundly change them as he calls them to repentance and gives them forgiveness of sin. And the means to change and become all that he first created them to be. If we don't keep opening up more and more to who Jesus really is, the Jesus we find revealed in the scriptures, the Jesus who has been alive and well in his church around the world over history, we dishonor him. We hurt his church. We needlessly distance him from the very people he's trying to reach. And we get very, very tired. We get tired 
if we try to manage God. It's just not possible. It just isn't. So, in summary, how do we find rest? We've talked about three things today. First of all, remember that Christ is truly with us. He is here. Secondly, give up trying to be in control. Let Jesus, the head of the church, the Lord and master of our lives, the loving, gracious Lord and master of our lives, let him be in control. And finally, open up more and more to who Christ really is. Let him, let his word truly define him to you and to those around you. Let's read that portion of scripture one more time the end of chapter 11, the 28th verse, where Jesus is promising us his rest. Could you advance it to that closing scripture slide? I think it's the next slide. Or maybe it's near the beginning. There we are. Let's read it together. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's Jesus' offer. Are you sensing the need for his rest? Are you willing to reach out to him today and say, Oh God, help me in my weariness. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for your words of encouragement. Thank you for this great offer of rest. We need it. I need it. We're troubled at times because before we get to the rest, things get disturbed. It seems like that's how you usually worked among people. The blessings, the goodness, the grace, the rest that you want to offer could only flow once things had been disrupted a bit and people came to a new sense of need and dependency upon you. And that's us today, Lord. We are needy. We're often stubborn. We too often want to be in control. We think we're self-reliant. Lord, it's okay to admit that before you, before one another. For your grace is big enough to take all that in and to begin your transforming work. So this morning, Lord, renew our minds, refresh our spirits, restore our souls, make us more wholly devoted followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.